0: All right. Hello, everybody. Uh, Welcome to uh, another CloudX podcast. Um, Today's topic is um, DevOps and uh, basically our definition of DevOps, where we think DevOps is right now and maybe a little bit of where it's going in the future. Um, So as always, we have some uh, interesting guests on this podcast Um, and this time I'm welcoming uh, Harish KM. Um, a principal cloud engineer, principal DevOps engineer uh, with CloudX. So welcome, Harish.
1: Hey, Nicholas. Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: All right. Thanks for being here. So first, a little bit of uh, background on you. Well, I I think in a sense, you're a better person to give your background. But from my perspective, um, Harish has been working in the cloud for many years and, and with us and been Really, really passionate about cloud overall and now in the last couple of years, especially on, on DevOps and helping customers um, pretty much all over the world uh, with various DevOps challenges, um, helping them to use more of the cloud, especially on the DevOps side. Um, so you have great experience, of course, within DevOps, but also uh, I think you, in a way you're a cloud generalist, um, because whenever I ask you questions, you seem to have very good answers and it doesn't matter what I ask. Um, so not only cloud, uh, you also have a long background in in software development in many different languages. Um, and, and, and maybe that also is what is needed for the clouds and the modern era that you have a very broad understanding of not only software development, but IT in general, to really specialize in areas like DevOps. So, yeah, that was uh, me rambling a little bit. But, uh, again, thank you for for joining, Harish. And maybe you can uh, add a few details to that on on, on your background and what you have been working on the last couple of years.
1: Yes, yes, certainly. So, first of all, I totally agree with you when you said that uh, the background that you come from makes a big difference because that has been my personal experience as well. Because uh, I started in the industry, I think around uh, 10, 12 years ago. So a bit of a long time. Um, I initially started as a developer of pretty much anything you can think of. So everything from c to C++, Java, Node.js, React Angular, I've touched upon. And this went on for like, I think five, six years, the first five, six years of my career. Um, beyond that is when I started slowly transitioning into the cloud side of things. Uh, I got a taste of what the cloud provides, how much better and easier and more efficient it's, it is to do things in the cloud. And that's when I decided to take the jump, make the, make the crossover to uh, stop writing code for uh, like full-time code and then move on to more infrastructure side of things, so DevOpsy kind of things. And now that I do this on a day-to-day basis, I can clearly see how much of a difference it makes. Uh, just because I have that development background, it's 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 a whole new way of looking at things. It's a uh, when when people come to you for DevOps requirements, the way you understand them is completely different. So certainly, it, it makes a big difference. And uh, just to elaborate on my recent background a bit more. So, like I mentioned, in the last five, six years, I've been transitioning onto the cloud, uh, working more and more, uh, especially with AWS. Most of my expertise isn't there. Most of my experience isn't there. I did uh, dabble in Azure and Google Cloud a little bit, but, uh, yeah, most of my work is in AWS as well. And uh, in the last few years, couple of years. A uh, lot of my time has been spent uh, specializing on the Kubernetes side of things. So a little bit on OpenShift, a lot of it on Kubernetes, on AWS EKS as well. Mm.
0: Yeah. So, so that's really interesting. I mean, if you don't mind me asking, that transition uh, from one side, I mean, more, let's say, application development, software development, over to the more <clears throat> cloud side and especially DevOps, etc. What do you... What do you think about that transition and especially where you're at right now uh, being in a way very specialized in DevOps? Is there anything you miss from, from the old days, so to speak, or, you know, where, yeah, how does it feel right now?
1: The biggest thing I would say is it really, really comes down to personal preference. So when I got a taste of the infrastructure side of things, I just from day one, I felt like, yes, this is better suited for me uh, compared to writing code on a daily basis. But I have talked to many of my colleagues and friends who would rather have it the other way around, who love the, the, they love writing code on a daily basis, who would not very much like to work with high level um, infra and DevOps kind of things. So it really Mm. comes down to personal preference. But uh, Mm. Yeah, like I said, the, the development background makes a huge difference in the way I work.
0: Mm-hmm. No, and and I think that's really important on the personal preference in a way that's a lifelong journey figuring out what you're passionate about, right? But why 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 are you then so passionate about DevOps? I mean, can you explain where that came from and where did, where did that start? Uh, it started with. The
1: cloud itself, because uh, I never really had any experience on the on-premise, hands-on with the hardware kind of things Uh, that Mm. never happened, at least in my career. So as soon as you get a taste of cloud, you realize how much more systematic, how much more organized, how much more easier and efficient it is to do things, and then you slowly transition into this mentality of uh, um, like you might have heard in aws uh, keynotes and all you you think of yourself as a builder more than a developer so Mm -hmm. being in this industry for so long um, doing this hands-on on a daily basis you can clearly see that most of your time even if you're writing code on a daily basis most of your time goes into assembling different pieces of code or uh, or of software components and fitting them together like a puzzle and making them work. So you are a builder in that sense. The actual code that you write or the actual um, new development that you do is very much limited. So once you get into that mentality, this uh, DevOps and cloud seems very lucrative, at least for me. So it's it's just a matter of figuring out which is the right service or which is the right product or which is the right tool, uh, which is the right way to do things, getting them together, making them fit together, working, making them work together. And just that alone can solve like, I don't know, 50, 60% of your use cases and rest could be a custom development, which might take more work. But that comes later. So, yeah, right. that's the allure of it for me.
0: Okay. So, so I think, well, that makes me think, um, so again, we need to define in a way, um, here, I mean, what is DevOps? Right. And as we talked about many times, it's really, really difficult to, to really define DevOps. And, you know, if you ask five people in my experience, you, you pretty much get five answers uh, on what DevOps is. And the other challenge is that it's constantly evolving and it's going so fast as well um and one misconception and now we we started to talk about software development and code versus infrastructure right i mean one misconception to me is that devops is much more than that um especially again in 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 my own view especially within the last year or so we've seen devops grow becoming a a more important part and a bigger part of the cloud ecosystem where to me, DevOps is turning into the glue of the cloud or almost like the core of the cloud. It's not something that you only use for software development to automate things. It is something that you use more or less everywhere these days in the cloud.
1: Yeah, totally agree. So that's that's my view as well. Or that has sort of become my view. So when I stepped into this arena a few years ago, I was introduced uh, to the, the, the idealistic definition of DevOps and years down the line. Now I understand how things really are. So the way it was intended to be is, uh, you take a single engineer who goes across the spectrum, so right from building a feature into a product to Uh, actually building it, deploying it into certain environments. Maybe it goes to production as well. And then after it goes to production, it's completely your ownership. So you are responsible Mm. if something goes wrong in that feature or in that module in production. If uh, if it goes down in the middle of the night, you get a call, not the ops guys. You get a call because it just makes sense if you look at it objectively. You and that's where it I-
0: started as well, right? I mean, as, yes. I mean that, that's for <clears throat> just for the audience. I mean, that's where DevOps started. It started not, not as a technology, but more as a culture. I mean, you basically joined Dev, so development people, with Ops, operations, or you know, essentially infrastructure people, right? Uh, and the traditional setup is that the developer is developing an application and ship it over to uh, to the operations people who deployed. And there's a big conflict and a big gap between these two individuals or departments because developers want to make a lot of changes, new functionality, fix bugs, etc. But on the flip side, operations and infrastructure people, they want to have as less changes as possible. They're concerned about having users uh, being fully effective on systems, have the highest uptimes, etc. So every time you introduce a change, that is upsetting that routine so at, at the start of the problem um or at, at the start i mean we have a problem because you just have different ways of looking at things and that's also what you alluded to before right you had a development perspective and now you're getting more an ops perspective and at the same time then devops has grown into this i wouldn't necessarily call it monster but it's uh it's big these days so i think it's just important for everybody to understand that that it started as a culture and now it has transitioned into to something much bigger that we're going to try to define here in, the, um, in a little while. Yes. So... Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. The,
1: the reason that culture sort of evolved into this or distilled into this, what it is right now, is I think one of the reasons is the sheer uh, amount of skills that an individual needs to be so capable across the board. Because mm. if... If if someone has done all these uh, tasks at some point in their career, they will know there is a lot of tool set and products and services and, and things that you need to learn to be good at every single one of these stages. So everything right. from writing code to building it really well to deploying it to monitoring it. Uh, Everything, all, all of that, and, and the underlying infrastructure that you are deploying it to. So all that knowledge in one person, it's really difficult to get. But it is, if you can achieve that, it's also the ideal way to do things because if something breaks in production, the person who wrote the code for that can figure it out in 10 minutes. But the person who is just, uh, you know, looking at a dashboard, monitoring that system may take a couple of hours to figure it out.
0: Nice. So.
1: The culture came from the right mindset. It's just that it's really difficult to, you know, actualize it in the real world. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. So what has happened now is um, having worked in this DevOps role for a few years, uh, the way I see DevOps is pretty much everything outside of writing the actual application code is loosely falling into the under the DevOps umbrella somehow. So you can break it down even more, maybe depending on um, what kind of organization you are. If you are like an enterprise, obviously you have a different uh, cloud team, infrastructure team, networking team, security team, and so on. If you're a small shop under the DevOps umbrella, all of this will, will be happening. So. Mm-hmm that's how it is um right now so taking my own example the kinds of kinds of projects that i work in uh, we deliver number of services or or uh, types of uh, projects that we take up under the devops umbrella so i'll just uh, cover a few here one is what we call platform engineering so this is all to do with the platform itself so what is the foundational platform that your application runs in. It could be as simple as a bunch of AWS native services. Maybe you just took EC 2 instances and deployed your application to it, or maybe you just took uh, Lambda functions and that's your microservices architecture. Or if you have chosen to go with Kubernetes, that becomes your platform because that's, that's like a layer above the underlying AWS infrastructure. Right? So, it's, it's a bit different. So everything to do with the platform, certainly it's, it's clearly falls into the DevOps arena. Uh, Depending on what the platform is, uh, I'll keep the AWS infra side of things aside. Let's focus a bit on the Kubernetes side of things. So for example, if your chosen platform is Kubernetes, um, every aspect of Kubernetes, whether it be, enhancing the deployments of your kubernetes applications using GitOps, or securing your application by um, integrating security tools like uh, sneak and sonar cube and whatnot into your pipelines or uh, just enhancing the observability and uh, the the visibility into your clusters if you're managing multiple clusters all of this falls under the Platform engineering umbrella. So as an example, uh, in one of my projects, we recently underwent this uh, massive uh, undertaking where we want to wanted to build a single observatory for all the clusters that we are managing. So we have like uh, within our organization, internal to our organization, the lab clusters that we call, uh, they alone are like I think ten or so and we wanted a single pane single uh, single grafana instance if you if you want to call it that way uh, that could have visibility into everything. so it might uh, I mean it's a, it's a great idea, but building it takes a lot of work so um, just to give you an example when you're monitoring a single cluster. You're monitoring everything right from the infrastructure, the nodes that make up the cluster, their resource and memory utilization. Uh, Then one layer above, there is the entire application layer of Kubernetes, Um, are the pods healthy, are the services healthy, are they responding in a timely manner. Then there is the security aspect. What kind of images do you have deployed? have you blacklisted any images? Are there suspicious software's being deployed into your cluster? All of this, um, baking these up one by one into the observatory, it takes a lot of work. And that's right. where a DevOps engineer working in this pillar of platform engineering would be doing most of that work.
0: So, so just uh, let, let me ask you a question. So uh, again, I'm, I'm trying to understand this. So you're saying platform engineering that is in a way similar to building the foundation for, for a house. You want to build a house. You're not maybe really sure how big the house is going to be, but you need a solid foundation. Uh, and then there are multiple ways you can do that. You can do like a basic one, you can do, let's call it a more modular foundation, and then you can go really, really advanced. And that's basically what the, the platform engineering will do for you.
1: That is correct. But I just want to add one more thing. Uh... I I just want to distinguish this platform engineering with something that you might call cloud engineering. So uh, you you build a foundation, you build a house where you want to live in, but it is a reality that uh, there are a lot of mundane routine things, just operational things that you need to do just to keep the lights on. So those things... Uh, like, like just a general monitoring of infrastructure or or routine maintenance, patching instances, those kinds of things, you could collect and keep it under another um, area of DevOps or infrastructure engineering or cloud engineering, whatever you want to call it. And then it because it's uh, more of a repetitive kind of work, it may or may not fall under a traditional DevOps engineer role. It could be like a dedicated team for to do that. But at least in smaller organizations, uh, it will still fall under the DevOps role. So that's where the distinction happens between platform and cloud, I would say. The platform is all about uh, what does the application need to be really, really uh, running perfectly on that platform and then enhancing the platform to even even more
0: uh, capabilities uh, Okay. yeah but so maybe we should take a step back because now um i mean we're, we're trying to define uh, devops right or, or at least we're trying to tell the audience about our definition of devops so so the way i think what we came up with and, and like i said we, we've had many discussions we've disagreed um uh, but i think right now we agree on the five pillars right So I'm just running through them here quickly. So we have platform engineering where we have discussed some details already. Um, We have release engineering and cloud engineering, reliability engineering, and developer experience. So that is fair to say that that is our, as in CloudX, that's our definition right now. Those five pillars, that's normally when we engage with customers and overall how we look at at DevOps. Correct,
1: so just to take the next step in that that definition. Uh, Release engineering, uh, the name is pretty self-explanatory, but uh, it's all about uh, how you deploy software, how you release software into your target environments and how well you do it. It's, It's all about automating the deployment. And once you have the basic pipeline in place that is going to do the deployment for you, then it becomes a, uh, like pretty much every other pillar, it becomes an endless uh, opportunity of improvement. You can build all kinds of enhancements into your release pipeline. Everything from security scans to uh, just just uh, plain organizational policies that you might have. Uh, so for example, if you have a policy that says, these are the only sources of Docker images that are allowed in our clusters for security reasons, for example, or whatever other reason, Mm. then how would you go about enforcing that? So it would fall under both pillars. It would fall under platform engineering because you need something in the platform itself that when your applications come in to get deployed, they will be checked whether they are whitelisted. Similarly, the pipeline that is deploying to the platform, that comes under the release engineering side of things, would also have some kind of uh, checks in it that says whether this uh, service, this microservice that we have developed, is it acceptable? Is it according to the organizational guidelines? Is it uh, passing all of our security checks? So those are the enhancements that uh, will inevitably come once you have a basic uh deployment automation pipeline in place so that's on Mm. the release engineering side of things
0: okay yeah that's interesting so now we have covered platform engineering release engineering pretty much right which one do you wanna tackle next
1: so just touching upon the cloud engineering once more uh i i know i Compared it to platform engineering when I was talking about the uh, routine operational stuff that we are talking about, mm-hmm. but uh, you could also look at it in another way. So, if your chosen platform for your application is cloud native services itself, not not like Q- Kubernetes cluster, uh, not a hybrid environment, not a multi cloud environment, but just plain cloud native services then definitely these two pillars of cloud engineering and platform engineering will have a lot of overlap Um, but again you will want to draw a distinction between what you're doing to the cloud services to enhance your application versus the work that you do in your cloud services just to keep the lights on just for monitoring purposes just to uh, stay up to date with the latest security patches and things like that. So, both those aspects will fall under cloud engineering. One is the uh, traditional operational things, and another is if your cloud itself is the platform, then enhancing it to meet the requirements of your application that would also come under cloud engineering. Okay. Yeah. The yeah the next one. Let's talk about reliability engineering. Uh, so this one, I would say is, I mean, it's not really new in the sense. Uh, its It's been around for a while, but it's relatively new compared to the other Philips. Uh, so this whole concept of site reliability and this site reliability engineering as a discipline, uh, I think it was started by Google, which uh, its it's all about once you have a piece of software deployed in a certain environment, whether it be production or something else, there are certain uh, requirements that have to be met by the software. I mean, of course, it's supposed to do what it's supposed to do. It has its features and functionalities and everything. But other than that, it's supposed to be available maybe for 99% of the time. It's supposed to be accessible. It's supposed to run at an expected level of load. It's supposed to have a expected level of resource consumption, maybe in terms of CPU, memory, disk usage, network, everything else. So all of this gets covered under that uh, the the monitoring the site kind of umbrella. So once you have a software deployed onto a site, now, ensuring that it is robust and reliable is where this entire discipline of reliability engineering or site reliability engineering comes into, comes into play. So this also includes the entire uh, discipline of chaos engineering, uh, which was most, uh, most heavily popularized by Netflix, the chaos monkey engines and all those things that they open sourced a few years ago. Uh, It's it's all about software is going to break. That is inevitable. So why not just do it ourselves? So we built tools and products and services around just trying to randomly break things in our cloud ecosystem and see how things behave, learn from those behaviors and then make changes to our, uh, ecosystem such that our system becomes even more reliable. So, uh, if, so for example, if you, uh, I mean, I, you must have watched Netflix, obviously. So if you watch Netflix a lot, every once in a while, you will see when you land on the Netflix page, instead of it showing you the traditional list of thumbnails, of your recently watched uh, movies or tv shows or whatever it will show you sort of like a generic uh, picture grid of thumbnails so what's happening there so <laughs> the, the story behind it is something along the infra some some key piece of infrastructure is down or not performing as well as it should so The system has adopted or sort of bypassed that piece of uh, uh, logic or that piece of software component and slightly degraded the user experience in order to maintain availability. So the user still gets to consume Netflix. It's slightly degraded user experience, but availability trumps, you know, not being able to use Netflix at all.
0: So, well, so you know, in a way you're answering or you're asking a lot of what if questions. Yes. So so w- what if this happens? You know, so you find and, and again it's a very very healthy exercise, right? I mean you don't have to go and disrupt too many things, but uh, again, you need to poke at systems and applications, right? You need to understand what are the limits. So again, what what if I get a hundred new users today? Or depending on the size, maybe you get a thousand or whatever it is, right? Um, what, what, what happens then, you know, is the application slowing down? Is it, is it crashing? What if a database goes down? Can I still use it? Or like you said, yeah, can we change the user experience? I mean, what if? Yes.
1: So, um, if, when you start asking enough, what if questions you get to a point where you cannot, uh, reasonably answer them anymore just at a theoretical level. And that's why we need uh, a number of tools and services uh, that would actually simulate failure, actually simulate uh, failure of all these what if questions and then get us the answer. So it's, it's all data driven. It's all tangible. It's all concrete. We don't, we don't have to theorize anymore. So uh, right. just as an example, um one of my recent projects we had this uh, uh chaos engineering campaign where we had uh, uh taken litmus chaos so litmus chaos is a popular uh, open source uh, chaos engineering framework it essentially lets you build what are called chaos experiments so you can tell litmus chaos uh, go and delete this EC2 instance or go and delete this Kubernetes service or delete this pod or uh, simulate an entire availability zone failure in my AWS account. You can tell right. it to do that and it will just go to that. And then by writing these kinds of exp- experiments and running them, maybe even randomizing them, maybe even running them on environments that are actually in use by a uh, number of users, and then observing their behaviors, you learn a lot, and then based off the out of those learnings, you you know come up with a huge list of what all we can do to improve the uh, improve the experience and improve the system, the reliability of the system
0: right but but it's important, of course, to take the time to do that and uh, but I think it's also changing with the tools available uh, because you could also argue. If you look at backups, for example, backups have been around for a very long time. And you know, we've been in many of those situations where we look at backups and you know, we ask customers how are you doing with uh, disaster recovery backups. Oh no, we're doing fine. It's like, okay, so you have backups. Yes, we, of course we have backups. And you know, we take uh, on these frequencies, we separated the database from the application, we have different streams, and but then you check basically the, the governance, right? And basically, like you're saying, the chaotic elements like okay how often have you actually tried to restore those backups so you basically build a new environment or you try to even shut off your production environment simulate failure um and build a new environment again and restore the backups how long time does that take or do people know what to do also the personal or you know people element to it right um and you know who can even starting, who can say that it's a failure? Now we need to restore from backup, we need to build a new environment, et cetera. And the answer is, as we all know, many people don't do that. They just trust the backups without having tried them, which is uh, interesting. And this is then solving it because you, this becomes so critical of what you do almost on a daily basis. So um, so you know you need to build resilient applications from, from the ground up and it's part of everyday life.
1: Yep, yep, yep. So. Uh, Just an interesting anecdote on that end, Uh, we actually had this kind of a scenario in one of my projects recently, wherein we were using an Elasticsearch cluster where all of our logs were getting aggregated from all the microservices. And for years, the only backup we did was just creating a snapshot of the underlying EBS volumes from the AWS AWS that that is serving the Elasticsearch cluster. And that only only recently, when we actually tried to restore it, did we realize that it did not work. Uh, And it was never supposed to work. Uh, That's when the research kicked off. And that's when we realized um, it's not even an officially supported way of backing up Elasticsearch. It has its own uh, specific way of creating backup and restores. you know, all this, this uh, follow-up questions and the proper way of doing things, all this will not have happened unless we try it out and we fail and then we realize it's not the right way. And then we accept.
0: Right. Yeah. So let's, uh, now we covered four pillars. Should we uh, talk about the last one? Yes.
1: So the last one is the developer experience. This is... Um, I mean, depending on how you look at it, you may or may not consider this a big deal. But uh, if you have ever been on the developer side of things, you would definitely see the value in this. So uh, let me let me start with an example, actually. So we have uh, this one project where we use Kubernetes as our, as our uh, platform for the applications. Now, all the developers, well, the tens or hundreds of developers who are building their applications that get containerized and deployed into Kubernetes have a basic level of training and understanding on what Kubernetes is, how it works. But it's still a practical reality that they cannot have uh, an in-depth understanding because that's not what they do on a day-to-day basis. Uh, Compared to someone like me, I'm working with Kubernetes daily, so obviously I know how it works. If something goes wrong with an application, I can pinpoint whether the code is going wrong or the the, uh, cluster is going wrong. But they cannot do that. Uh, in, In order to scale the development efforts in your organization, how do you tackle this kind of a problem? The first thing is you need visibility. So, the developers, if they do not have visibility into what is happening in the, in the cluster, in the target of their deployment, they cannot act on it. So, uh, as uh, one of the items that we did under this development exp- uh, enhancement, sorry, developer experience enhancement uh, under this umbrella is building a... Uh, easy to access and easy to understand visibility platform for all of our developers where they could deploy their service into Kubernetes and clearly see what happened to that service, where did it end up, is it running as expected if it is failing, why it's failing Uh, did you give it maybe, did you not give it enough CPU resources, not give it enough memory resources because you wrote the code, you know the kind of traffic it's going to get, you know accordingly, what kind of resources it might need. The cluster administrator cannot know that, but simply because we provided such an uh, interface for you to go and check it out, you can now take better action. You have a better clarity and understanding of what's going on. So that's one step ahead on the uh, developer experience side of things. So uh, that was just one, exper- uh, one example, but, this is the general uh, idea under the pillar. So enhancing developer experience goes a long way, uh, whether you want to, whether you look at it from uh, enhancing developer productivity, whether you are standardizing developer workflows. So for example, if you have uh, Jenkins pipelines that everyone is using, what is the guarantee that everyone is using the same stages in, in their pipelines? What if someone, uh, leaves out the security scanning stage. How would you audit mm. that? So all of this, these small, small things tend to add up, and that's what we cover under the developer experience.
0: But also extending it is kind of back to the beginning, right? Because it, it sounds like you are you're facilitating. I mean DevOps engineers are facilitating uh, environments Primarily in the cloud, right? For others, being it developers or, or end users or builders or infrastructure people, you're sitting in the middle, uh, almost like the spider in the net, and uh, orchestrating how a given workload or application should function. Or is that too far?
1: Oh no, no, that's that's exactly how it is. So, uh, like I mentioned in the in, earlier at the beginning of our, this conversation, uh, once. A developer writes the actual application code. It's our job as DevOps engineer to facilitate the entire pipeline that follows it from building, deploying, monitoring, everything else. So we are, we are, yeah, our our core purpose in a way is to facilitate their entire software delivery process.
0: But but my point, it's not only for development, right? Um, and, and I think one question I get pretty frequently, which is maybe tough to explain, but... So if you're building a new application, if you're starting in the cloud, et cetera, um, I think even for, you know, let's say, CIOs or, or other non-technical people, <clears throat> they understand that DevOps has a part of it, and then we heard about containers, maybe about continuous integration, continuous deployment, uh, pipelines, etc. cetera. Um, but if you then consider more traditional enterprise workloads, Uh, And if you look at a standard company, many companies have, I mean, a lot of those, right, compared to custom development. Can you just uh, spend a couple of minutes on where does DevOps fit in there? How would you explain that to to somebody that is not within IT? How is DevOps useful for traditional enterprise workloads?
1: So, first of all, I have seen... um, that everyone, even at the CXO level, everyone who has a good understanding of why DevOps matters to them has had some level of, you know, they have some basic understanding of the technical side of things. Uh, they, they understand at least from hearing from their tech leads, they understand the challenges that go into uh, deploying and reliably running a piece of software. Uh, if that is not the case, then the, the other side of, uh, the other way of looking at it would be, you have learned from incidents in your past. So for example, if, uh, you have a production system, whether you're running it out of a cloud or your on-premise data center, it, if it's, if it's, if it has been running for long enough, it would have gone down at some point, or maybe you brought it down for maintenance, scheduled maintenance, And when that happened, if it was an unplanned incident, you you can feel it. You you have felt the pinch. You can Mm. see how long it takes to bring it back up and running. And that's when you get a taste of how much friction there is, how much work there is that goes into uh, keeping these systems up and running. And once you do that, you will be able to see the value of DevOps. So we are in in the DevOps world, we are trying to, first of all, standardize things as much as possible. So there is no more, uh, you know, custom per server configurations. There is no more like a a server admin going and configuring uh, 10 different Linux servers one by one by hand because if one of them goes down you have no idea how it was configured if you try to replace it you have no idea what should be the configuration that goes into it those are all challenges So first thing you do is standardize as much as possible next once you have standardized things you can build on top of that you can automate the configurations across your instances then if you are onto the cloud there is a whole Uh, you know ocean of automations and efficiency enhancements that you can do so once you have started this process of automation it's it's like a superpower you can apply it to any problem that comes across your way so for example if a database goes down and you have to bring it back up maybe you have had this kind of an incident in the past, and you have noticed that it took like 24 hours to bring it, bring a production database back up. Now, what if you were to automate everything that goes into bringing, uh, restoring a database? Uh, if you try to do that, you realize that it's not so easy unless you use the tools and services that are coming from this DevOps arena. So because we, um, formalize this entire DevOps discipline, there is an entire ecosystem of tools and services that can be reliably built and used by all of us in the industry to achieve a different level of efficiency. So now you hear uh, uh, stories of companies like Amazon doing software deployments every 11 seconds. How is that happening? Only because we have arrived at it incrementally step by step by automating and uh, automating even the final testing uh, where humans used to be involved, even that is automated now to an extent where we can reliably deploy things to production every few seconds and it doesn't break anything.
0: So So I guess that's uh, in a way, I I think that's a good way to summarize it and and basically wrap up this podcast as well. Um, So we talked about many details, but, you know, your answer now at the end was that it extends more or less everywhere and it can automate, it can improve things um, into pretty much anything. And that is how important DevOps has, has gotten. and. Just overall, we're super excited, obviously, uh, about DevOps, and we're proud of the DevOps services we provide um, to customers uh, all over the world uh, in in different fashions, being a product worker, being consulting, or more strategic, et cetera. Um, So, yeah, Um, I just wanted to thank you so much uh, for your time, Harish. Uh, This has been a a great conversation, and I'm uh, looking forward to, uh, to the next one.
1: Yeah, great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right.
0: Take care. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.